and I hear the same theme repeated, I tend to think, okay, Lord, I'm on the right page. This is what you're saying. This morning in Sunday school, uh, God was speaking through Larry, I felt. Uh, Larry was talking about mega churches, and I thought, how funny. He doesn't know that's exactly what I'm using to open my teaching this morning. Exact, almost word for word, what Larry shared this morning. So I felt like, okay, Lord, I wasn't that enthused about this message this morning, but my enthusiasm is raised just a little bit. So with that as my unofficial introduction, uh, officially there's a, there's a mega church in the South, uh, and I'm not being coy by not mentioning names, I just want you to get the point. Uh, there's a large church in the South, uh, got to be one of the biggest in the nation, certainly one of the biggest, uh, two, three, four, maybe anyway. Uh, the church is not only known for its huge size and the stadium that it fills every Sunday, tens of thousands of people every week, but their handsome, charismatic pastor-teacher is also noted for the philosophy he brings to his teaching, and it's basically this. He doesn't teach anything that he thinks could be construed as being negative or discouraging. Nothing negative, nothing discouraging. Now, I don't want this to sound like a huge put-down, although, you know, I'm going in the opposite direction, obviously. Uh, to his, his defense is this. He says, uh, people live in a tough world. They're discouraged already. When they come to church on Sunday, they need to be edified, built up, and encouraged. And if you and I heard that, we'd say, well, yeah, that, that's all true. There's, there's no problem with that. You know, the the tough sell with this, of course, uh, is matching that philosophy or mentality with the Bible, with the biblical record. Then you start running into troubles, uh, supporting that over time. If if you have responsibility for teaching in a local church or any venue, Sunday school, whatever it might be, uh, you're called, basically, to represent God and what He said. And so... God says things that are encouraging and edifying, and and the bottom line is you want people to be encouraged in all the right ways. But the truth is, uh, as often as not, you guys, me, all of us from time to time, we need to hear things that at the time we find discouraging, hard to hear, hard to take, because our lives aren't what they should be. And let me just give you a couple for instances. When Paul, and this, by the way, isn't the text we're in this morning. This is just all leading up to where we're going this morning. But when Paul is sailing towards Jerusalem, he stops on the Asia Minor coast and he calls the leaders from Ephesus to him. It's the last time he's going to see them. These are guys he's mentored. These are the elders of the church in Ephesus. He's mentored. He'd spent a considerable amount of time there. He tells them when he's leaving them this in Acts 20, verses 26 and 27. I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, Paul says, when I stand before Christ, my hands are clean of your blood. I'm not guilty before God for failing to do right by you. Why? Because anything God gave me to tell you, I've told you. The good, the bad, the ugly, anything God gave me, the whole purpose, some versions will say the whole counsel of God, I've given you. This, by the way, is a guiding principle for my teaching 
which is why I switch from New Testament to Old Testament. I don't do typically subjective teachings because at the end of the day, when I stand before Christ, I want to be able to say, I didn't withhold, God, anything that you'd said that would have been of value to the church. And, and my way of doing that is to teach both Testaments and do so systematically. That's why I teach the way I do. Paul says, my hands are clean because I've told you everything God wanted you to hear. I didn't hold anything back, what you might perceive at the time as negative or otherwise. When Paul writes Timothy, this is the last epistle of this prodigious epistolary writer, epistle writer, Paul. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable. It's profitable for these things. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Paul assumes a couple things here. One, that people, the church, in Timothy's day, which was Ephesus, and in your day and mine too, would need reproof and correction. That is, uh, Tim, people that you know, and Mike, and all of us here, there's going to be times in our life when we need to be reproved. We need to be corrected. There's going to be elements in our life that aren't what they should be, and we need to be corrected. We need someone to come up along and say, that's not right, you need to stop what you're doing and go the other way. And Paul says the way you'll be ready to do that is through knowing God's Word. God's Word will give you the ability to do that. And part of what God's Word gives you the ability to do is to reprove and correct. These aren't positive messages. These aren't feel-good messages. These are something's amiss and you need to get turned around. Right after that, in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, when Paul's talking to the, one of the key leaders in Ephesus, he encourages Timothy to do this. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. This, to anybody who's on the receiving end of it, sounds discouraging, sounds confrontational. It's not warm, fuzzy messages. But Paul says to the key church leader in Ephesus, he's got to be committed to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. These all have the sense of calling someone to account. Your life is supposed to be going in this direction and you're missing the mark, you need to turn around, you need to do something different. And that's what, Timothy, you're supposed to do as a leader in the church. Lastly, along this line, in Revelation 3.19, when Jesus is speaking to the church at Laodicea, He says, those whom I love, I reprove. In fact, in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, if God doesn't discipline you, some of this is positive, some of this is negative, If God doesn't discipline you, here we could use the term reproof, He doesn't love you. God's reproof, His correcting you like a good parent, is the evidence of His love. Hebrews again says, if your parent doesn't discipline you, they don't love you. Proverbs says, if your parent doesn't chase you, pursue you with discipline, they hate you. Jesus says, I love you, and you'll see that love in evidence through my reproof. And As you guys know, in the Sunday school, we've just come through a series of chapters 1 through 3 in Revelation, which what does Jesus do? Commends what He can commend and reproves what needs to be reproved. So the biblical record is this. God tells us whatever we need to hear. And oftentimes, it's, it's at the moment, it's what feels critical. It's not encouraging. They're not warm, fuzzy words. They're God's in our face saying, something's amiss, you need to turn around. Or they're God speaking to us through someone else saying, your life's amiss. You need to turn around. Something's not right. You need to turn around. 
A friend told me years ago, and we were in the midst of a, of a situation that required some of this criticism, uh, he said one of the greatest marks of character of a person is how they respond to criticism. How do they respond when confronted with something that's uh, a, crit- a criticism, a correction, a reproof, a rebuke? It's a great test of your character. It's also, as you'll see this morning, not a test, just a test of your character, but it also is a means of revealing what's in a person's heart. The way you and I respond to reproof, criticism, and correction is a doorway or it's a window of revelation into the attitude of our heart of where we're at, really. Not what we're saying, not what's going on on the outside, but what's going on on the inside. So as you hear this message this morning, ask yourself this. How do you respond when you're criticized? And this could be, in your mind, this doesn't have to be just uh, constructive criticism. If somebody's intentionally being critical of you, not to build you up, but to tear you down. From that to someone that you know and love is confronting you about an issue. How do you respond when you're reproved, rebuked, criticized? What's your response? What's typical of your response to this kind of confrontation or truth? We're in Genesis 4, verses 1 through 8 this morning. We've left the Garden of Eden. Do you remember in the end of chapter 3, uh, God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden in His mercy to keep them away from the tree of life because He said if they eat it, they'll live forever as those cut off from God in their sin. So we saw the tree back in Revelation, those closing chapters. It wasn't that God was keeping them from life. He was preserving them for redemption. But now chapter 4 opens and now Adam and Eve, as we'll see their children, start life anew in the wider world outside the garden in the sin-cursed, sin-challenged world. And that's where we're at this morning. By the way, the passage this morning has both the first birth announcement, thinking of people in the hospital, And unfortunately, the first obituary, uh, side by side. Genesis 4, verses 1 through 8. Now, the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the Lord. Cain, by the way, means acquired or brought forth. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, Abel means mist or vapor. I don't know if this was prophetic about a short life. You know, mists and vapors don't last long or not, but uh, that's the meaning of Abel's name, mist, vapor. Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground, we might say a farmer. It came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. And By the way, the term offering here is the same term that Jews would read later, and we read in our Old Testament elsewhere, the offerings made to God under the Mosaic economy. It's the same word here. They're offering things to God just as Jews would later. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. But for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. 
Cain told Abel his brother. And it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Before we get into the uh, kind of the meat and potatoes of the the, uh, content of the story this morning, I want to deal with the question that most often comes up about the story is, uh, why was Cain and his offering, why were they not acceptable? And it's funny, and this is the first question that rises to my mind too in this story. You know, you read the commentaries and they point out this isn't the emphasis of the story though. Uh, why was one approved and one wasn't? Uh, the story's not all, all that very clear on it. Uh, but we've got to do something with it. So these are the options. Uh, some think, and this has some credibility in my mind, some think the most popular explanation is that uh, Abel recognized by offering an animal, a lamb or a goat, that sin was an issue between he and God, and there needed to be a substitutionary atonement the the life of someone and their blood had to cover his sins so that he could come before God. So this sounds pretty good, you know. Um, Adam and Eve knew God had slain animals to cover their shame. Um, there's so much silence here that you've got to be careful we don't read too much in here. But maybe Abel understood that sin was the issue. The animal's life covers it. Not real sure. You know, later in the Genesis stories of the patriarchs, they're making animal sacrifices as well. This is before the Mosaic economy. It's before God commands these things to take place. So maybe they knew from Adam and Eve, and maybe Abel knew that a blood sacrifice was the appropriate way to come before God. Um, This has some merit. The weakness of this, of course, is the text simply does not say. The text doesn't tell us this. This may or may not be connected to the issue that God has with Cain and not approving he and his gift. You can go to the New Testament, though, Hebrews 11, verse 4, to find out, generally at least, what the issue was. Hebrews 11.4 says this, By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain, through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous. Hebrews 11.4 doesn't actually say what did that look like. Why was Abel expressing faith and Cain wasn't? (laughs) We don't know. It may be that the expression of faith may have been that it was a blood sacrifice, but the text doesn't say. So we're not sure exactly what that means, but... Whatever else it meant, it was the difference between the offerers and the offerings, at least was this, it was faith. Faith was the difference between the two. Right after that verse, two verses down in Hebrews 11, it says, without faith it is impossible to please Him. Remember that the world of Genesis 4 is a fallen world cursed by sin because Adam and Eve believed trusted, had faith in, Satan instead of God. And in this fallen world, God says the minimum you can do to find favor with me is to believe me, a God who can't lie, the God who created the world you inhabit. This is the least you can do is to believe me, is to trust what I've said. So Hebrew says the difference between the offerers and the offerings was a matter of faith. It was an attitude of the heart. It may or may not have been connected to specifically what they brought to offer, but it at least had to do with the attitude of heart that brought them both there. 
from the outside, they both did the same thing. They both brought an offering to God. And think of this too. If you were seeing this from the outside, you'd probably be confused too. Uh, Two people go before God, they make an offering, they come away. God accepts one and doesn't accept the other. You might say, well, you know, what's the difference? Hebrews says it's an attitude of faith. That means it's an attitude of heart. But you know, if you look around today, if you look in this room today, can you and I tell the difference between someone who's a Cain versus someone who's an Abel? Because from the outside, they're doing the same thing, right? They're doing exactly the same thing. It was the attitude of heart that was the difference. And think of this too. Later, Jesus goes to a religious setting and to Pharisees who go to the temple and they go to synagogue and they make the offerings just like Cain. And Jesus says, you know, you don't belong to my father, you belong to your father, that's Satan, the father of lies, etc. On one hand, Cain is kind of an example of just a religious person going through the motions whose heart is estranged from God. And you can't tell from the outside and from the actions that are given from a person, you and I don't know the value that has or doesn't have before God. Uh, This does not say either, how did Abel know his offering was accepted and Cain knew his wasn't? Because the text doesn't say that either. If you've watched the movie, the Bible from the 60s, Cain's smoke gets blown in his face from the offering and Abel's goes up. I don't know if that, who knows. But they both knew They both knew, but you and I wouldn't know looking from the outside because it was an issue of the heart. So we at least know this. The difference between the offers and the offerings was at least an attitude of heart. It had to do with the element of faith. One had it and one didn't. To the elements that the story does focus on, and if you guys have a chance, if you read commentaries on Genesis, one of my favorite authors on this is John Salehammer, and oftentimes the points I'm making are because I've read Salehammer. He's a great Old Testament uh, commentator, and so he has several books on Genesis, and I'd sure recommend them to you. Uh, Salehammer points out, and the story points out, God doesn't focus on the offerings themselves or numerous other things that we're curious about. His focus is on this. Cain's response to reproof, correction, rejection, and God's warning to Cain. That's what the story actually focuses on. So first, Cain's response. So Cain makes the offering, God rejects it, and the offering. What's Cain's response? This is a form of rejection, criticism, reproof, rebuke, if you will. Verse 5, Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Just so we're not confused, verse 6, The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? God rejects Cain, rejects the offering. Cain's response is, very angry, and his countenance fallen. Do you you get the picture? I hope you can see it in your mind. If you're a parent, have you ever seen this? If you're a parent, you've got to have seen this, if your kids are old at all. If you're not a parent and you've seen someone else's child responding to their parent, I'll bet you've seen this too. Because Cain is doing exactly this thing. You go to your child and they're disobeying. And you say, stop what you're doing, you're disobeying. Not only are they disobeying, but when they respond to you, they're in your face defiant. So then you realize there's actually two things going on. One, they're disobeying. Two, 
They don't give a rip about you anyway. They're disrespecting you. And that's exactly what Cain's doing. When he responds to the rejection of the offering, that would be one thing. He could have responded a number of ways. We'll look at some options here in just a second. What is his anger? And when it says his countenance has fallen, if he wasn't angry and his countenance was fallen, we might say, oh, the poor guy's sad. But again, thinking of your own children or someone else's children, when you see, when, apply that to your child when they're angry at being reproved. And when it says their countenance was fallen, do you think that means they're just the little, the little feller sad? No. <laughs> they're not pleased. They're upset with you. You've blown their, their goal for the world, their plan for life. You've blown it. So when it says his countenance fallen, this doesn't. The story gives no implication that has anything to do with repentance. Gee, Lord, I'm sorry. It means I'm ticked and you can read it on my face. I'm unhappy. You've not pleased me. You've not given me warm fuzzies, Lord, and I'm not happy with you. In your face. I'm disobedient. Something's already the matter. But the response indicates the attitude of the heart. Now, you guys know there's all kinds of ways we can respond to criticism, reproof, correction, whatever. Let me give you a few. You may have some more. Let me give you a few. If you're confronted by someone with a criticism or a reproof or a rebuke, whatever, that, whatever word you'd like to use there, something that calls you to account, that says you're missing the mark, you need to change. A common one, maybe the most common one for most of us, I suspect, is fear. This could be for a couple different reasons. Most of us live life fearfully, timidly, anxiously. And we do so because we just don't have a hold of the truth that if we're a Christian, we're in Christ, we're accepted in God, we're signed, sealed, delivered for eternity, we're in heaven, we're good to go. Do you know what I mean? If you're a Christian, you should be able to live life joyfully, exuberantly, fearlessly. But that's just not true for most of us most of the time. So if someone brings you criticism or some type of correction, for many of us, the first response might just be fear. Like, what did we do wrong? We blew it. What did we do? I live life fearfully. Criticism is like an exclamation point. And I think it's because we just don't have a hold on the fact that we're okay. We're with Christ in heaven. We're good to go. And if we need to be reproved or corrected in some area, that'll be okay. Our loving Father in heaven... He's not going to let anything like bad happen to us. It's, it'll all be okay. So it's a failure to grasp that. I think that for most of us, probably more often than not, our initial response to criticism or reproof is fear because we live life fearfully. Another reason we might respond with fear is we've been doing something under the radar and now it's not. And so we have a fearful response because we realize... Uh, Others are going to know what we've been doing now, too. And we just fear the repercussions. That would be natural also. What we've been doing is now not private, but public knowledge. And so there's going to be issues that I don't want to face that are coming up. Fear would be an appropriate natural response with that also. Another one would be uh, excuses. Someone brings us a criticism, a reproof, and we make an excuse instead. You know... We saw this in the fall story. You know, God comes up, what'd you do? And everybody passes the buck. God, I'm sorry, I'm not responsible for that. That's not my division, whatever. 
And an excuse is just a way of saying, I'm not responsible for what I'm responsible for. Someone corrects me, reproves me, I say, I'm not responsible for what I'm responsible for. I don't want to be held accountable. I don't want to be responsible. Of course, in the end, we are. And, and some of that, you know, comes home to roost here on earth, and some of that will come home to roost in heaven when we stand before the Lord. But we are responsible. An excuse is a way of trying to get away from what we're responsible for. Another one would be uh, belligerence, which is Cain's here. It's belligerence. And belligerence involves pride. Especially if the confrontation, the reproof, the criticism is coming to me from someone who is in any way my superior. This could be at work, this could be in the church, this could be in the family. If I give a belligerent response, it means that pride is an issue. Because I'm telling that person, who are you to tell me what to do? I'm not submitted to the person in authority over me, and so I'm belligerent. You see that exactly with Cain in spades. Belligerence, pride's an issue. Also, I might go beyond belligerence and I might make an accusation as my response instead. Have you ever confronted someone about an issue and their response is to accuse you of something as well? And this goes something like this. It's kind of belligerence plus. And it's not only do you have no standing to correct me, but you've got your own issues. Deal with them first. I remember being in a uh, situation in which we were... uh, uh, I was part of a group confronting someone, reproving, rebuking, etc. And uh, the guy says, well, Mike, uh, you've got a problem with, I don't even remember what it was. And my response was, okay, uh, I'll be glad to talk about that after we're done dealing with this issue. And by the way, criticism, constructive criticism doesn't just have to come from those who love you. Uh, God can speak and often does through your Enemies, and I've said this before, Churchill had a great quote, which I can't quote, but basically it was, uh, he valued his enemies because they'd tell him the truth and his friends wouldn't. So if someone, even if you know that they don't like you, they don't want your best, if, if you're the one giving the reproof and an accusation comes back your way, Guys, I think you need to be open to hearing that, no matter what the source is coming from. I, I'm, I value the words of my enemies sometimes because I think there may be a kernel of truth. And they're, they're the only ones who will tell me because they don't care if they offend me. But an accusation is a way, it's, it's pride and belligerence, plus you have no standing to correct me, and by the way, you've got your own problems to deal with. Let me offer a better response, a better way to respond to criticism, reproof, rebuke. All of these basically fail to simply deal with whatever the issue at hand is. All these other ways fail to just deal with whatever the issue is. So let me offer a better way here. The first is this, it's just to listen to whatever the critique is. It's just to listen. This sounds simple, but it's not. Most of us, as soon as we know someone's saying something that might be negative about us, do you know what our first instinct is? It's to defend ourselves. So then you cut them off. You, you don't even hear the rest of what they have to say. The first thing is just do this. Just listen. Don't do anything else. Don't defend yourself. Don't work out rationalizations in your mind. Just hear the critique. Just listen. Write it down if you want, whatever. Just listen. After you've listened, if you're not sure 
it applies. If you're not sure it's the truth or if it's something you need to think over and you're dealing with somebody, you're interacting with someone, tell them you need time to think it over. Think it over and get back to them. And, and do that. Get back. Tell them you'll, get, you'll think it over and you'll get back to them and do it. If you need time to think, think. Tied to that, assess the criticism objectively before God. The more objective you can be for yourself and for others, the better. The more objective you can be. And when our emotions are involved, this is hard. But be as objective as you can before God. Think about the criticism. Pray about it. Ask yourself, does that criticism follow with what you know about yourself and your tendencies? Look up Bible verses. Do a little study. Whatever would be helpful for you to assess the criticism and its truth content and therefore its value, be objective about that. Think about it. Mull it over. Sometimes you might think your response is too subjective. You you can't get your hands around it. You're not sure how much this applies or not. If that's the case, if there are other people that you know and trust that you could ask about that same thing, do. For instance, if someone came to me and said, Mike, you have a problem with gossip. I might think, well, I talk a lot. Maybe I do or maybe I don't. They think I do. Well, I might go to two or three other people and say, hey, I've been confronted about gossip. Is that something that you perceive as I have an issue with as well? And they need to be people that you know would be willing to tell you the truth. Again, most of us go out of our way not to offend. And, and this message this morning is about receiving criticism. You know, there's a time and a place where you've got to be the one who's giving the criticism and the reproof. We're really not talking about that this morning. But if you're going to seek someone out and ask them objectively, is this true of me? Do you think this fits? You need to go to people that you feel not only know you and know your tendencies, but will be willing to tell you the truth as well and not not shade it gray. And lastly, having heard them out, whatever the critique is, and thought about it, assessed it, got input from others as needed, decide what you're going to do about it, communicate that to whoever it needs to be communicated to, and then do it. Then follow through. So you've heard the criticism. You've assessed it as objectively as you know how to do. You've thought it over about what practical changes that will mean for you. You've made a course of action on how that's going to look for you, and then you've communicated that back to whoever needs to hear that. That's a better way to hear criticism, a critique, a reproof, a rebuke. You don't see that in Cain, of course. And we'll look at where that leads him here more in just a minute. A humble attitude, a contrite heart, are these key elements of our character that that are what are required for us to hear criticism and benefit from it. Humility and a contrite heart. And you think of David's words, I'm thinking both of Psalm 19 and Psalm 139. In Psalm 19, God tells, David tells God that there are sins he knows about and there are sins he doesn't even know about. And he wants God's help with both. In Psalm 139, he invites God to search him and try him for anything in him that would be hurtful. David's a guy that loves God, God loves David, and yet David knows there's issues in his life he'll need help with. And he asks God, 
He invites God to come in and give him this kind of reproof, rebuke, exposure, constructive criticism so David knows where those issues are in his life that he needs to address or look after. We need to have that same mentality. When you read your Bible and God is confronting you about some issue or when your employer complains to you about your performance or when your parents correct you or when your friends voice their concern about some element in your life, listen humbly and make the changes that seem appropriate. Cain again does not do that. Cain doesn't respond well to God. His is the belligerent response. God follows that up with a warning to Cain. Verse 7. If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. God warns Cain, Cain, you're not doing right. You're already not doing well. You've already got an issue. And the rejection of the offering points that out. And I'm warning you again that your disposition, the attitude of your heart, is setting you up for greater sins with harsher consequences. Greater sins with harsher consequences. And I love this. Sin is crouching at the door. Cain's pride and the rebellious attitude of his heart have created a situation where sin is like a lion or a tiger at his door. Sin always brings death. And God says, Cain, it's as if the attitude of your heart has put a wild beast next to you in your life. It's at your front door and its desire is for you. It wants you. Sin wants you. Death wants you. And the attitude of your heart has put this wild beast right outside your door. In other words, you've opened yourself up for more danger, much greater danger, for destruction by the attitude of your heart. God says, you must master it. You must say no to the temptation. You must change the attitude of your heart or it's coming and it's going to get you. There's a quote that's attributed to both Confucius and Martin Luther that says this. I don't know if Luther read Eastern philosophy or not, but uh, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Well, God says to Cain, basically, the birds are making a nest in your hair and you've got to get rid of them. And the beast, this destructive beast, is sitting on the threshold of your door. And you can get rid of it. You must master it. You're not the victim here. You're the one who decides whether you're destroyed by the beast or not. But the attitude of your heart has put a beast of destruction at the door of your life and you better look out. Cain, of course, does not take the reproof seriously, nor does he take the warning seriously. And of course, the text this morning ends with Cain rises up against Abel, his brother, and strikes him down in the field. And then following that, we'll see in the the passage that follows in a month or so, uh, the judgment and the death, the result of the sin that follows. Cain didn't respond to reproof. He didn't respond to the following warning 
and sin came in, sin which was sitting at the door, and destroyed, wrecked his life. If you're having trouble with beasts on your doorstep, sins on your doorstep, it may have to do with an attitude of heart that's affecting all of your life. If we have problems with one sin and then another, if we go from one destructive, destructive element in our life to another, it's probably because there's an underlying attitude. It's because we're entertaining some attitude in our heart that's not faith in God, some way in which we're offering God excuses and belligerence and pride and accusations, but not humble repentance. And if you find, again, numerous things coming home to roost, the birds in your air, there's a pretty good chance there's an underlying attitude in which you're not right with God. I say this to myself as well. When I see one sin and another, if I have trouble with one thing and then another, I've got to say to myself, Lord, I'll bet there's something at the foundational level that's askew between me and you. You know, if you drive cars, uh, we have what we call a blind spot. So we've got mirrors on the side of our car. And sometimes if you drive a big truck, you not only have a side mirror, but you've got a semi-round mirror on top of that. And it's because driving that car, there's this blind spot. And so if you go to pass, there's a good chance you're going to run right into somebody else, right into danger. And the truth is, all of us have blind spots. And you want to make use of the mirrors for sure, but don't be offended. Don't be defensive. If someone comes to you out of your blind spot and says, hey, there's an issue you need to be aware of. Sometimes, too, the issue is going to be something that we are aware of. And we say, I'm aware of that, thanks, and I'm dealing with it or I'm not dealing with it or whatever. I uh, was in a prayer meeting many years ago in which a guy said something that he thought was from God for me. And when he said it, it made no sense to me whatsoever. But I prayed about it and I thought about it. And three days later, it was just like the light went on and I knew exactly what, that God was speaking. I knew exactly what he was saying. And my first response was anger. Uh, because I knew God was saying, Mike, I am changing your life and I'm not going to allow you to live the way you have been. And it was freedom on one hand. God was, of course, inviting me to freedom on one hand. But my initial response was anger because I thought, Lord, this is the way I cope with life. This is the way I get things done. And I'm a get things done kind of guy. And I'm going to feel compromised if you take this away from me. So my initial response was anger. But I knew my father well enough to know that uh, he would win. And so I thought, Lord, you show me how, because this is new territory for me. So if someone speaks to your blind spot or if they speak about something you're aware of, (coughs) humbly listen and then make the changes that count. And by the way, related to this, read your Bible. I say this a lot. Read your Bible. To Timothy, Paul said, the Bible is what gives you the ability to interact in any situation that comes up in your life. You're adequate, thoroughly prepared for every good work if you know your Bible, the truth content of the Scriptures. 
If you are reading your Bible every day, if you're memorizing Scripture, if you're making the Scriptures your life, if that informs your life, God's going to be doing a whole bunch of this every day. Little bits of it, in other words. Because God will speak the truth into your life, and it won't be a zap from heaven that's something you're ignorant of. God will be shaping your life all along. And you'll realize when you read that passage, I don't do that, and I should. Or when I memorize that passage, I'm doing that, and I shouldn't. Because God will confront you in the truth of the Scriptures daily. Read your Bibles. Let's pray. Lord, I'm struck again that it's out of your love that you correct us. And that if you didn't love us, you'd simply let us go our own way. God, help us entertain grace and humility towards others when they share words that may be hard to hear initially, but may be words of love from you, helping us to become the people in Christ you mean us to be. Father, help us to get over initial defensive mechanisms, excuses, fears, pride, belligerent, to hear you when you're calling to us to change some element of our life so that we can be freed from sin and the death it brings. God, keep us from following Cain's example. Help us to be David's, asking you, inviting you and others to speak into our lives to remove hurtful ways from us so that we can honor you and be the people you mean us to be in time and in eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.